Hello, I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mel Plus. I am joined this week as every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Mm. Hello. <laughs> Hello. You're in jeans. I'm, I'm so, I know. I'm so discombobulated. I, am, I don't know what to do with uh, you. I'm wearing a pair of jeans. I don't recognise you. You're well, not my friend anymore. My daughter said that I had to get some jeans. And then she showed me lots of really cool websites. Mm. So I obviously went to Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> Oh so the most uncool jeans. I know. They're, they're actually, they're not a hag jean, they're a grand jean. And I ordered a selection of jeans because oh. you can take them back, you see. Oh, I see. And try them on in the privacy of your own boudoir. Oh, so I ordered a selection of jeans and I settled on the magic jeans. Oh, which are, they? are Well, they're very elasticated. <laughs> That's the lunch? main thing. So I can do them up. And sit down in them. Oh, I mean, okay. there was one pair which was not magic. No. Which were quite cool. They were that sort of wide leg shape, but they weren't oh. elasticated. And then when I sat down in them, an enormous thing overhung my waistband. Oh. I got that That's sort, sort of, of thing that going to give you cystitis, those ones. Yes, that, that, but these no. ones are quite cool. They look, I mean, they Do are they really know? uncool. <laughs> are they cool? I don't know. Do they look ridiculous? Do I look like I I'm just, trying you look, too hard? You know when your mother comes back. Stop it. No, not not you as you're my mother. <laughs> but you know when your mother comes back from the hairdresser with a different haircut yes. when you were little and you didn't really like it because yes. she looked different. Is that what you think of me yes. in my jeans? I might have to reappraise our friendship oh, from now God. on. Okay. No, it's very, yes, it's very discombobulating. <laughs> I'm going to look straight ahead for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> but you always wear jeans. Why are you allowed to wear jeans and I'm not? I don't understand why you get to be queen of jeans and I have to just wear elasticated waistbands. I mean, admittedly, these are elasticated jeans, therefore technically they are an elasticated they are, waistband. Yes. It's but just the blue. Got, it's they, the blue. They've also got a high rise. Oh. Which, when you've got one of those postmenopausal stomachs, yes, which is it's, it's called a muffin top. It's like having a sort of extra stomach. Yes, it's quite good because it keeps it all in. Well, yes, but can I ask you a question? Did you buy them online? Yes, of course I bought them online. So I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who told me I was too old to buy things online. Why? Because he's American, Alec. He went, Imogen, you're too old to buy things online because <laughs> they never fit. So, because you, you're not, but you bought a selection, so that yeah, was wise. Yeah, I bought them in two sizes. Oh, yes. you see, I'm always a bit tight. You want to just do that, because the marks and sets are very easy. You could take them back very easily. Yes, but apparently there is an age limit to buying online. Who knew? <laughs> so, if you're too old, if you don't know, because I'm a 13, size 13. Oh, that, now you're just showing off. No, I'm not. No. But it's just one of those things. It's like, I can't buy that. So, I keep buying stuff and I keep having to send it back. Mm. So, Well, I was just delighted because these jeans are size 16. Excellent. Which is better than an 18. Well, that's true. And not as good as a 14. <laughs> no. And I and I feel... But you can, at least you can have lunch yes, in them. I can have. I did, in fact, have lunch in them and it good. was very pleasant. Good. Yes, and my daughter will be proud. I sent her some pictures for approval. Right. And she said they looked okay. So well, I'm, I'm not pleased. looking at you for the rest of the whole podcast. <laughs> It's very discombobulating. I don't like anyway, it. Anyway, coming up on today's show, we will be talking to the founders of the Discalculia Network, who will be explaining how this hidden condition could be affecting you and your family. It's not hidden. It's not a hidden condition in no, my life. No, it's no. very obvious. I can't. You. I just can't deal. The, I can't no. tell the difference between fives and sevens. No, you can't even order a pair of jeans without. No, sometimes four it takes me about seven attempts to do a phone number. Does it? Yeah, it really does. Actually, is that because you're drunk? No, not just always. Joking. Sometimes. 
But first, a brilliant new book titled Hags, The Demonization of Middle-Aged Women poses the question that's been staring us all in the face. Why are middle-aged women treated so badly by almost everybody? <laughs> joining us now is the book's author, Victoria. Thank you, Victoria Smith. Thank you for joining us, Victoria. I have to say, I love this book and I particularly like the cover because it's just a big red word, hags, with a broomstick through it. And it sort of does kind of encapsulate how middle-aged women are seen in the world at the moment, particularly Karens, all of those sort of awful kind of slurs that we have to endure. I mean, it starts really brilliantly, actually. It starts with the buddy boiler in Fatal oh, Attraction. In Fatal Attraction. And even when I was a young person and I saw that film, I thought that's not a very nice way to characterise <laughs> an old lady. Um, but but you did, really? I did. Oh, okay. I did. You just didn't think she was just a mad I old... I quite sorry for her. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, okay. But, that, but th that's me. But tell us why you came to write the book and what you're trying to do with it. I sort of came up for the idea for the book sort of towards the end of 2020. And that was the year that mm. The Guardian declared the year of Karen. Mm. So there were all these messages going about, about particularly white middle-aged women who talk too much, complain too much, shout too mm. much. And this was the year I turned 45 and I was sort of becoming increasingly sensitive to these kind of messages. Mm. And then at the same time, you hear this narrative going on that women, as they get older, they increasingly feel invisible, increasingly feel ignored and sidelined. Mm. And there are statistics that demonstrate this in terms of our representation mm. on screen, the way we're depicted in stories, the pay gap widening and widening as we were in our 40s and 50s. And yet at the mm. same time, there's this great big cultural narrative that's saying, oh, you're too noisy, you're complaining too much, shut mm. up. And it was very hard to push back about it because as you know, if you complained about the Karen narrative, you're instantly told you were a Karen. It was this kind of <laughs> self. Yeah, it's a sort of, it's a character yes, of yeah. I mean, I did write a piece right at the start of the Karen thing in the mail saying mm. precisely that. And then I did get lots of emails from people saying, you're such Karen. Only a Karen would yeah. object to being called Karen. And it's completely right. But I love what I love about the book is this idea that it's all based around sexual attraction and the sort of diminishment of sexual attraction. And you go back to the sort of fairy tales, Snow White, The Wicked Stepmother, and which I've always felt mm. were really anti-older women. I mean, that sort of whole narrative that's there throughout history, really, mm. that older women are irritating. You know, we should just shut up and sit in the corner and not eat any of the food or do any of the things that yes. should be reserved just for the young people. Just do some people. gentle spinning. Just maybe do some spinning <laughs> and some maybe some darning. Yes, and, and be slowly pushed off the stage is what it exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. But that contrasts so much with the way that men are seen as they get older. They're seen as silver foxes. Silver backs. seen as more sort of glamorous. And it is completely counter to the reality of the situation because middle-aged women are actually very wise and capable and quite useful and quite useful in many many ways because they know how to do all sorts of things that young women don't know how to do mm. mainly because young women are too busy trying to attract men <laughs> and I love the idea that you've sat down and explored all of these historical references the book is very well researched mm. from what I've read what stood out for you when you were doing your research could you find the root of all of this stuff I think, I mean, it's something that seems to be repeated with each generation. I certainly found when I was reading it, I sort of went back to quite a lot of second wave texts. And, and this was another thing I, I noticed around the time I was thinking of the book, that this was, um, there was a tweet that went viral that compared COVID and 
feminism as both having problematic second waves and this was this big joke and it it kind of represented to me this real generational tension within feminism the way that once you've reached a certain age you're meant to back down and not talk about your rights because mm. your ideas are old and they're not relevant anymore mm. and you're on the wrong side of history and all these things and it just seems to happen with every single generation if you go back to the second wave you discover that Susan Brown Miller wrote about how that's actually how a lot of second wavers saw first wavers and there were mm. suffragettes around at the same time as second wave feminism was happening but People didn't want to interview them because they weren't relevant anymore. Because they were old. And they were yes. considered these privileged ladies mm. that didn't really have a lot of experience or of the real world and things that mattered. It's just this dividing between the generations and stopping women trusting other women that has gone on for so many years. And But each time you think that you will do it differently or you think that mm. your generation is maybe quite a special one and that you'll end this cycle. And I certainly, I remember feeling this very strongly as a Generation Xer, this this idea that third wave feminism would kind of not have any of the flaws of second wave feminism, but would, you know, we would be really cool older women and people wouldn't see us the way that our mums were seen. Well, I am a really cool older woman. You are a cool older woman. I know, we I are just, really cool. Have, it's just that people don't realise it. Every generation always thinks they're special and different and interesting. I mean, for you, how gratifying was it to blow the dust off the old guard like Greer and Dworkin? I mean, do they have anything to say still to us, do you think? Or, I really think they, they do. Yeah. And I think, um, mm. I think a lot of the narratives I got about... People like Jermaine Greer and Andrew Dworkin. Mm. So in the 90s, I was very much into the kind of raunch feminism, kind of mm. um, third wave. Ladette the, culture, Ladette I think culture it is, isn't it? Thing. Yes, and, I can be cool with an underwired bra. Yeah, yeah, and had such a caricatured yeah. idea of what second wavers thought, that, you know, that yeah. they were... They were anti-sex, that they were prudish, mm. they were really judgmental, they were just looking down on mm. us. Because now I think, I probably sound like that to some younger women and it's really hard to get the message across to say, no, no, we've been there. We thought that about ourselves too. And it's this way that you're always wanting when you're younger, maybe men are higher status than mm. people who remind you of your mum. So you want to align yourself with the higher status people. Yeah. But it gives you this fear I of becoming older. And actually, there's nothing but I, to be I do remember of. meeting Dworkin, by the way. Did I you? met Andrew, Andrew Dworkin. She was absolutely terrifying. And she was wearing dungarees. Yes. And, <laughs> and had her sort of yes. hennaed hair and yeah. her centre party. And I felt like a bit of an standing next to her. Yeah. I did have the push-up bra on and the sort of very short skirt. And I thought I was being a ladette yeah. and really cool. Yeah. And she was quite intimidating. I was full of girl power, yeah, yeah. And she was quite intimidating. Yeah. I think sexual attractiveness is a really important part of this because I think it's the beauty chapter that you talk about mm. how some doctor who was a menopause doctor was talking about how the problem with middle-aged women is that they've lost their sort of fertility. Mm. And, and they're like as, eunuchs. As you put it, <laughs> yeah. They're basically, yeah. like, that, was it, that was it. He said they're like <laughs> yeah. eunuchs. The, nice. The, the thing is, what I would say is someone who's gone through the menopause mm. I love not having the hormones. It makes me so much happier than I was for the 30 years when I did have the hormones. Mm. But the thing that it does to you is it makes you less, because the hormones make you nurturing and sort of flirty nice. and want people to like you and nice, as Imogen says. But without the hormones, yeah. you don't care what anyone <laughs> thinks about you ever. But it just really doesn't matter because you don't. You're happy to fight yeah, over the parking because space. Because nature is not 
filling you full of chemicals mm. to make you nice. And I think that's part of the reason why middle-aged women are so vilified is because we don't really take much nonsense. Mm. No. Because we, we don't have but the... I, but I also do think the tide is turning quite a lot. I mean, if you look at something like Happy Valley, for example, yes. I think the Sarah Lancashire character is very much obviously a postmenopausal woman. And she's seen very, very much as a woman in charge who doesn't care what anyone thinks and is an admirable and interesting character. And she's the lead character. People love it. Which is, yes, which is unheard of about you know, five or six years ago. No one, you might trying to get that through BBC mm. drama. But I think that's because older women who are now, we're still, we're still in the workplace. We're still, that's we still true. have a voice. Yeah. We, we haven't sort of disappeared off and gone and worn lots of elasticated trousers. God or gardening, which is apparently what you're supposed to do. God or gardening, exactly. Age of 55. So, yeah. so I, we're just much more visible because we're, well, we're powerful, I think, probably. Well, we just haven't buggered off. That's no. the problem. no. Yeah. And I it is. Say. I think the workplace is an interesting sphere as well for the middle-aged women because I've got a couple of friends who are sort of in their fifties and who have been slightly sidelined in their work, and they're both very worried about it because they say it's much harder for a middle-aged woman to find another job mm. than it is mm. for a man in the same situation. Yeah, there's a real sort of difference in perception of what's happening mm. through a through the ageing process and men are sort of seen to sort of, I mean, Robert Wilson, who wrote this really sexist book on the menopause in the 60s, the one who said mm. that women become eunuchs, he, he also said like a man's life continues in smooth continuity from like birth till death, whereas in midlife, a woman's femininity crumbles in ruins. And it's this idea that you kind mm. of, as soon as you stop being fertile, there's something about mm. you that's a bit defective or you're not as you're productive, irrelevant. you're not as, but, and it's not. But that's also... It's not true. No. And it's also to do with the fact that women are, from a very young age, encouraged to judge themselves on their attractiveness. And funnily enough, that's something that has just got worse, yeah. I think, mm. especially in the Instagram age. You know, I was never particularly attractive as a young person and therefore I never saw myself in that context. And I think for me, therefore, getting older has been not quite so hard because <clears throat> I don't feel like I've had that much to lose, if you see what I mean. So I was never one of the push-up bra sexy girls. <laughs> and I'm also not now, but I, it's not like I've lost anything. Whereas women who are, who are encouraged to really judge themselves by the way they appear, because you appear less good as you get older, and there is a bereavement process mm. there that I think goes on. Also, if you have daughters you're completely buggered because they're very happy to start telling you you're a very boring Karen <laughs> and that you know nothing and that, you know, you're too slow on your telephone. And there's a sort of, sort of the classic Karen situations are, for me, going in, in a taxi and let my children sit there and go, please don't tell him how to drive. Please don't tell him where to go. And the other one is don't complain about your table when you go out to dinner. Why are you always complaining? Why Why can't we stop it? Don't go in the middle. <laughs> that sort of thing. So I think... Uh, well, my daughter never never does that. She's oh, the one complaining. Oh, mortified. I, I'm the opposite. It's like she's a sort of young Karen and I'm I'm a sort of oh, okay. young do, do you have children, Victoria? Yeah, I've only got sons though. And sometimes, it's, oh. sometimes I think it's, it's, slightly it's, different. it's a bit easier. Because I, I remember what I was like at, when I was a teenager and my own attitudes to older women, particularly because they're related to my own fears about what mm. things would be like when I was older and what opportunities I'd have. I think, you know, I'd really worry about having a daughter who saw me in that way and feared becoming mm. me, whereas I think it's slightly <laughs> different with sons. 
yeah, sounds very different. But my daughter, I don't know, she and I just sit on the sofa together and just Karen away together. That sounds great. Yeah. She, she's like I an honour. But I do Karen. pity somebody who had actually called Karen now. <laughs> I don't know whether it's one of those names that's losing popularity. I'm sure it um, is. <laughs> but I do I do think it's a very unpleasant and quite sort of I mean, you can't imagine any other group of people having that sort of derogatory blanket term no. ascribed to them in this day and age. And it's really hard to push back a against because it's tied mm, to mm. these this idea of morality and it's also been tied to racism. So you're kind of accused of, mm. of not wanting well, to acknowledge privilege. But also pushing back against it is in itself an act of Karenism, yes. as far as the people who, you know, how dare you push back against the fact that I'm calling you a, an old hag, you old yeah, hag. Yeah, and it, it's a lot of quite young men have sort of found, they've latched onto it as a way of almost pretending mm. it's some act of social justice virtue to call mm. older women names. Yeah. So to call you a Karen, it's, mm. it's almost like they're standing up for oppressed workers or they're standing up for female victims of racism and they're not. They're just insulting mm. older women the way they well, always are. Like, rude. I mean, <laughs> it's a bit like TERFs. I mean, TERFs are sort of a subset of Karens, mm. aren't they? Yeah. But I mean, basically, it's the same thing. It's any older woman who's prepared to stand up for her rights and won't take any nonsense mm. from really anybody who's going to try and take them away from her. Yeah. What was the most interesting thing that you found when you were doing all your research for the book? I think um, one thing I didn't expect to feel as important as it does was just the importance of legacy and the importance of recognising female history and what women have done in the past as part of feeling at home in your body now and feeling comfortable as an older woman and also enabling younger women to feel confident in relating to older women I think I used to have this great fear that looking back over female history was a bit like it was a bit desperate. It was about trying to make it look like women had done lots of special things when actually they hadn't. And most of the amazing things have been done by men. Whereas actually um, there's loads of really brilliant women in the past and there's loads of brilliant writing. And, there's, you know, the second wave writing was something that I was very eager to just dismiss and not pay any attention to. But I think the problem is if you're always considering your generation must be the really special one to make its mark and prove that women aren't useless, you're just setting yourself up. You're creating so much pressure and setting yourself up for failure. And you're also reinforcing this sense of shame about being female as well, mm. as though women have been rubbish up till now, but now they're good. And but I think one of the things that I mentioned in the book is that the statue of Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, the one that doesn't look anything mm. like her, but it's this yes. this perfect yes. young skinny body emerging from this mass of whatever went before, which wasn't any good, but it was just, you know, like this, women are always in this state of becoming and it's actually, now women have always been great and they're great now. Mm. And I think if you looked at women's past and think oh women didn't do anything they weren't any good it also relates to this idea of looking at older women and thinking oh women haven't done anything much yet but my generation will be mm. be special and I think for me I think it always reinforced that kind of fear of becoming older in some mm. ways you know related to the turf thing I do think some of the way in which younger women disidentify from the body and don't want to be women is related to this mm. fear of becoming this idea of a woman that's um, related to all these negative stereotypes about their mothers or about being sexualized. It's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of women who are successful women in history have tended to be religious women. Yeah. 
So therefore, women who have been removed from the well, don't sort have of, children or never got you know, married. Yeah, or, but yeah. who have been removed from the sort of sexual sphere. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, you think of Hildegard of what whatever she was called, who did all that wonderful. That's it, all that wonderful music, mm-hmm. and you think of all the great abbesses who presided over sort of. It's when you take the sex out of the woman that they sort of somehow manage to achieve something because they're not endlessly either pregnant or distracted yeah. by yes uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but also we it, it, we seem to be the only animal that doesn't value the matriarchal figure mm. because if you look at I mean all you have to do is sit down for an afternoon of David Attenborough to the you know the orcs the you know those whales and the, yeah. you know, and the elephants the, the you know the matriarchal figure is the one that knows where they're going where the water yeah. is and how to feed everybody they're not actually pushed off on stage I mean it's very weird I mean I think so religion plays religion plays a huge huge part in all of this doesn't it i mean how much of that is in your book there's not a huge amount on religion in the book i just think the idea that women are inherently sort of useless which is inculcated in us from birth yes because the idea that eve was responsible for all the things that went wrong in the world and And with her wantonness exactly (laughs) and it's failure to appreciate women's reproductive role and the fact that we create all the humans and instead it's kind of treated as this a bit of a flaw a bit of a weakness in women whereas actually it's an amazing thing and it's amazing capacity and then when we're not having children anymore we're considered completely useless and it's and actually we're so depended on and we're so essential and so important Mm. and Older women are so essential to the economy, even in terms of our unpaid work and all the things we're doing, mm. but it's not fully recognised or valued. And mm. so why do you think the demonisation happens? Is it because people are scared of our power? Or do you think it's just sort of straightforward lookism? I think there's a degree to which older women have an independence. And it, there is that, like, not mm. caring what other people think. Mm. And I think it can be recast it's being recast as entitlement or privilege when actually Mm. it's women just behaving in a really confident way and you know having none of those like i'm gonna like i mean i think i think of the wife of bath as the sort of ultimate kind of older woman who's in that sort of situation she doesn't have to yeah. worry about mm. and she's sexually aggressive yeah. towards I know, younger that's people the most dangerous well. person yeah. of I know all, isn't I it? know the idea of the sort of merry widow who sort of doesn't yeah. have to worry about but it is that idea you know despite sort of the equality at work bill the idea that you know all the as Janice says in her brilliant uh, review in the Times that all the bum wiping and the floor washing is basically what women end up doing. I mean, you don't see many blokes actually doing no, that. At so. the end of the day, it still, yeah. still falls to us. Yeah, yeah so I talked part of the book for, to Marianne Stevenson of the Women's Budget Group. And one of the things she suggested was she feels that part of the kind of demonization is guilt. And you kind of people... Mm know that they're really dependent on this generation of women mm. and they know they're doing loads of unpaid work and they know that you know women play such an essential role as mothers and as carers and yet economically they're not valued as much and and there's this kind of, you can feel less guilty if you decide they're morally inferior and if you treat the work they do as actually they identify with it because they're just posh cis mm. ladies and it if you just decide that they've chosen to do that and actually it's quite a conservative role being a being a housewife or being a mother and you don't have to actually appreciate it and recognise what you owe these women. Mm. Yes, I mean, quite a lot of women just end up doing all the work because no one else can be bothered to do it. Well, yes. 
Uh, or if they do do it, they do it so badly that you have to do it again. So you just think, well, I might as well just do it in the first place. Yeah. I will say say that my partner isn't like that because I did kind of spend quite a lot of time like in the evenings he'd be putting the kids to bed and I'm like I'm going to work on my book and I'm writing about the unpaid labour gap and the gender gap and he's doing like cleaning away and it just felt made me feel a bit of a hiccup so I just thought I'd put that out there I don't think you should feel guilty I think no. as, I think if you're going to be a real hag you're going to have to yeah, own okay. that <laughs> yes you know you just accept yeah. it but you're too young anyway to be a hag because you're only 45 I'm 47 but no. yes yeah, well, yeah that yes. doesn't mean that. You, yeah, you're not. There You've just yet. gone through the yeah. door. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You're just. I'm going to embrace your it. Foot into yeah. Yes. You should. You yes. should. It's very good. Yes. You, you, when you find yourself suddenly, mysteriously, in a garden centre, on a shouting sort of, at a geranium, <laughs> shouting that's, geranium. that's when you need. That's when you know. <laughs> or or going to look at. I don't know, magnolias. I do that a lot. Oh, do you? Yes. Sort of mysteriously sort of... I told you it's God or gardening. That's what happens. <laughs> well, thank you, Victoria. I think it's a great book and I think I'm glad someone's finally written it. Wish you well. well thank it. you. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was Victoria Smith, whose book's Hags, The Demonization of Middle-Aged Women, is out now. Dyscalculia, commonly known as number dyslexia, is said to affect around 6% of the population. But few people have heard of it, and even fewer know how it can affect people's lives. To explain, we're joined by Catherine Edel, co-founder of the Dyscalculia Network. Now, Catherine, I really wanted to do this piece because I am absolutely certain I have dyscalculia. Because I... You're in the special 6%. the special 6%. Because I muddle up my numbers... The whole okay. time, it's particularly sevens and fives. Mm-hmm. Can't mm-hmm. really do them. And then about sixes and nines. I'm okay with eights. I like round numbers that are shaped roundly. Right. If you see what I mean. Does telephone numbers. Sense? So I will sometimes, if a telephone number has too many fives and sevens in it, I physically do. Just you pay can't people the wrong it. amount of money. I do that. Yeah. Sometimes I add things instead of subtracting them. I used to do that a lot when I was at school, mm. which is a bit catastrophic if you're trying to do math. Yeah. Can you do things like house numbers? No. No. So tell me about this thing and how you have become to get involved in it. So I am a maths specialist teacher and I actually trained oh. as a dyscalculia teacher in 2003, which is showing my age rather a lot, isn't it? Not amongst <laughs> us, no. No, not amongst <laughs> us. You could never be I'd as relax. old as us. I'd <laughs> relax with that. Um, so I trained um, to be a dyscalculia teacher and I worked in schools initially as I'm a primary school trained teacher. And then as I kind of progressed through my career, I really wanted to work more just with the children who found it really, really difficult, because that's where my passion has always been in helping those people who found it really difficult. Mm. So I started my own business, Tutoring From Home. And during that time, I discovered that there was people contacting me from all over the countries because I had the word dyscalculia on my website saying we need some help. And this was pre-COVID. So initially it came from this happening on my website. And I woke up in the middle of the night when literally woke up and went, well, why isn't there anywhere for dyscalculia central for people to go to? And I thought, really, I should do something about that. And it was sort of a thought bubble in my mind for a few months. And then I met Rob Jennings when I was doing some teacher training and I was training a group of teachers and he came along 
from Emerson House and he was already trained as well and I said to him look I've got this idea what do you think mm. and he said you know I think that's a really amazing idea and we spent a year from 2018 to 2019 kind of developing the thought and coming up with a little kind of website and so on and it's really just gone from strength to strength from there. Is it a form of dyslexia? No, it's a very specific learning difficulty with maths. So there is some co-occurrence with dyslexia. So Mm. people with dyslexia often also have difficulties with maths, whether that's dyscalculia Mm. or general difficulties with maths. But dyscalculia is a difficulty with numbers and Mm. it's defined as a specific and persistent difficulty with number sense. And so how does it manifest itself? So it manifests itself in children or adults or whoever the person is finding estimating numbers really difficult so if you said here's a selection of numbers from you know zero to hundred show me on a number line about where 50 would be or about where Mm. 75 would be that would be very difficult they might struggle to do something called subitizing which is to recognize a small number of counters or objects just by looking at them so we call that sort of a lack of innate number sense just kind of looking at maybe three or four counters and just going oh there's four there Oh, there's three there. Yeah. So they'd have to count those individually. And things like not knowing what's bigger or smaller. So difficulty okay. with, with knowing whether the pile is estimating whether the pile is 20 counters, 100 counters or 1,000 counters. So place value can be very, very difficult. So is it quite visual? Is it a visual problem, really? It can affect visual and spatial and directional issues yes Mm. it can Mm. it's quite multifaceted do they struggle with geometry as well yes quite often and again there can be overlaps with other specific learning difficulties so Mm. things like dyspraxia or dcd it's common for there to be some overlap and if Mm. that's the case dyspraxia is spatial yes developmental coordination disorder Mm. so that is going to impact maths as well so there's many things that affect maths learning and Mm. dyscalculia is a very specific part of that so it's noticeably different because of its persistentness if that makes sense mm. and the it's fact that it really something very you. boring like say which is what I do all the time which is like 72 rather than 27 guessing the numbers the wrong way around I think that's just a form of dyslexia really rather than dyscalculia yeah. isn't it well it depends on the individual very much so yes absolutely if you reverse things that can be to do with sequencing which can be from dyslexia but sequencing yeah. can also be difficult for people with dyscalculia and I think what's interesting is Dyscalculia is under-researched at the moment. It doesn't have anywhere near the research that has gone into dyslexia. So Mm. lots of things are being discovered in the research about how the brain works regarding maths. And I think that in the next, hopefully in the next 10 years, we'll see some developments. How does the brain work regarding maths? I don't think my brain works. Is there there something just being bad at maths? I mean, like for my daughter, maths is like whale. But if you say to her something, it's almost like her brain goes into a high-pitched squeaking noise or like the radio gets sort of Mm. poorly tuned. It's like she literally can't even begin to understand. Is that dyscalculia or is that just being rubbish at maths? Well, I think that we have to be really careful because I think there's a general thing that we hear a lot of people saying, oh, I'm, I was always rubbish at maths, but it depends what you mean by rubbish at maths. You know, yeah. was the person rubbish at maths because they got a GCSE, but they didn't actually do that well. They got maybe a lower grade, but they still passed. Mm. Or were they absolutely fine until the end of primary school and then they found it difficult in secondary school? So we have mm. to think about what is the under root cause of that math difficulty and I would say that 
about 25% of people find maths difficult in some way. But mm. dyscalculia is a very specific right. difficulty. If we think of it as a spectrum, dyscalculia will come at one end of that spectrum. And in recent research, for example, Kinga Masani has just done some research at Loughborough University. And she, um, I think it was 2,421 primary schools. And there was 108 dyslexia diagnosis and only one dyscalculia one. Um, Within the population of those schools, about 23% of the children were considered to have mass difficulties. Mm. And she considered about 6% of those to have a specific and persistent difficulty that we would describe as dyscalculia. So Mm. we are talking about a very large population of people in the UK actually who have dyscalculia and it's very underdiagnosed. So if Rishi Sunak makes all, uh, all the A-level students he's actually do maths A-level. He's very good with numbers, Rishi. Yeah. But if Rishi makes everybody do maths A-level, A-level maths, A-level maths which is what he's, he's mooting at the moment, there's going to be a whole, at least 6% of the population is just going to be crying into their milk. <laughs> <laughs> I think and that, at least I think... another 25% who are going to be, you know, not be able to cope at all. I think it all depends you know, we're not against math, obviously not. But no. I think but <laughs> yeah. I think that we have to really consider policies like this. And mm. we we did bring out a statement about it actually, because for people with dyscalculia and math difficulties, more of the same of what they've already been doing isn't working. So mm. and they're not getting the support early enough in primary schools, they're not getting screened early enough. Mm. There's a problem with dyslexia screening. You can only imagine that dyscalculia is from the statistics I've just given, is even less well known and even less screened for. So if we think that those children are being missed in the system already, more of the same isn't going to change anything. So I think that policy has to be really considered carefully of what we're doing for Mm. people's confidence and self-esteem and whether that maths is relevant and useful for their future careers. If you think your child might have dyscalculia, what can they do? Is there a sort of test that they can take that they can? Yeah, so in the UK, dyscalculia can be diagnosed by an educational psychologist or by oh. a level seven trained dyscalculia assessor. The issue at the moment is within schools, some lots of schools have access to a dyslexia assessor, but very few have access mm. to a dyscalculia assessor. On the Dyscalculia Network, which is the community interest company we run, we actually hold the UK's only exclusively dyscalculia assessor and tutor listing so parents can pop onto the website and look up the area that where they live Mm. and find somebody to help them if they're able to go down the private route Mm. if they can't do that then they need to really keep putting pressure on the school and asking lots of questions Mm. because schools do have budgets for educational psychologists to diagnose are there other things that say, for example, if you're a grown up like Sarah, <laughs> what can you do to help her? Are there any things that she can do, like, you know, play with some number, buttons? Number exercises. <laughs> number exercises. I don't know. Certainly, I don't think it's ever too late to feel more confident with maths. And I think that's, that's really true. And from the dyscalculic adults that we work with, lots of people would like to have a diagnosis. They would like to feel that they understood. We had a 70-something lady from Scotland contact us um, just Mm. before Christmas saying that she'd heard about dyscalculia and everything finally made sense to her. And it was the first time in her life she didn't feel stupid because Mm. she felt like there was a reason for... And she didn't need the diagnosis, she just knew. She said, I just know, Mm. that's me. Mm. But for other people, 
as an adult, getting a diagnosis is important. And again, lots yeah. of our assessors assess adults too. Um, do. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something that's part of the dyscalculia network. But I have to be honest, I hadn't considered would be such a large part, which is silly of me, really. <laughs> what the grown ups? The yeah, grown ups. Yeah. I mean, I took me three attempts to get CSE grade one maths. I Did think. it? Yes. But, I mean, it can be quite an obstacle because if you want to do medicine or anything like that, you no. can't go any no. you can't do it but is you there can... like a sort of sudoku for maths that you could do to help <laughs> i mean that's what i can't do sudoku no, i tried i, I literally you can't. Just, I, honestly it's it's just all the worst thing no. i just want to cry can you train yourself out of it well i think that what we have to understand is that it's a specific learning difficulty and much like right. dyslexia somebody's yeah. always yeah. going to be dyslexic you're not going to take that yeah. away however obviously I think it's a really key point to say that with good intervention and early intervention, we can make significant progress in people's understanding of maths. Mm. Otherwise, I wouldn't do my job. And that is really, really important. And if mm. we can get help to children early enough and they can gain confidence around numbers, then mm. we can make a lot of difference to their lives. I and mean, numbers can be really fun. I mean, I remember my dad, who's really good at maths, mm. teaching me lots of special number tricks. I mean, yeah. they can be really fun. I'm just very grateful for the calculator on my telephone. True, but I mean, if, if things like learning from rote, you know, the whole idea of rote learning. So I found so, that really useful because it's like a song. Because it's reflex then. Mm. If you say, you know, seven sevens, yeah. it's a reflex. I mean, I have to go through the entire times table once. Seven, while seven, clapping. Well, to, to get to, I mean, I was, I could, if, if you say to me, what's seven times eight? Yeah. I couldn't tell you unless I recited the oh, whole okay. thing. Oh, okay. seven think, times think, eight? Yeah, because people don't think rate rote learning anymore. It's, it I really doesn't work well for dyscalculic learners. Okay. Mostly because dyscalculia. I'll get back in my books. <laughs> mostly because <laughs> dyscalculia often affects working memory and processing as well. It's oh, more okay. one of the sort of domain general effects in the brain. So mm. if you're asked to do something fast or you're mm. asked to do something by rote, you'll just know it, then most dyscalculics can't do that. There are some, of course, because always we're talking about a variety of people within that. Mm. There are some people who can rote learn certain things. And like you, you found a strategy of going through each mm. one rather than working out. But what we try to do is encourage good reasoning and good thinking and building up a strategy of skills to work things out without going all the way from from one can time I, can I, I just want to ask you one last question because my daughter is very dyslexic mm. and was also told that she had elements of dyscalculia. <laughs> so we took her to Cubon to try and help. Was that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? I don't think do? I should Ooh. really comment on um, on Cumon <laughs> having that I haven't used it. But I, from what I know oh, about Cumon, it's oh, mean. It was, it was the, honestly, she it was the mean parent. Uh, she honestly, I don't think she's still forgiven no. me for taking her to Cumon. I think no, that I it's bet. different things for different children, isn't it? And for some mm. children, working in the style of Cumon works really well for them. Mm. But in my personal experience, children or adults with dyscalculia need to hold maths in their hands. They need to get right. out the concrete manipulatives. Yeah. Mm. They need to use yeah. Dean's blots and Cusineros. Mm. Yeah, and abacuses and all of those things. And they actually have to hold it and move it and manipulate it and yeah. see how things fit together. And yeah. that is really, really important in our intervention strategies that we offer that. We call that concrete pictorial abstract. So we need to go from that concrete to a pictorial model before we give the abstract sum. And that's what works in our experience really well with people who find maths a little bit tricky.
Yeah, that makes sense. That does make a lot of mm. sense. Well, thank you very much. If people want to go to your website, discalculianetwork.com. And also, I just must say, we have Discalculia Day on Friday. We have an educator conference all day on Friday, a conference for parents, a free webinar in the evening led by our adult dyscalculic team who are just amazing and offer so much support to other dyscalculic adults and also a free webinar with Rob and I for any questions that people have. Brilliant. Great. I might turn up. I think you should. <laughs> I think We'd you love to help you. With my abacus. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. That was Catherine Needle, founder, co-founder, I should say, of the Dyscalculia Network. If you'd like to know more, there is a link in our show notes. You've been listening to the Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcast videos, opinion pieces and more. And if you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. Listener.